Hello and welcome friends. We're here for our uh, Sutra class. Really excited that you came. Uh, but before we begin, let's take a moment to appreciate our handsome community that's gathered here today. Today I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with the others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. So welcome everybody. Uh, this is again, this is our Sutra study class every Saturday. We're currently examining the Dhammapada, which is a classic uh, collection of sutras. Uh, today we will be covering chapter three entitled The Mind. And uh, it's a, a shorter chapter, so I think today's going to be a lot of fun. I hope everybody did their reading and they're all prepared. I did mine. I see a lot of people nodding their heads, of course. And so um, we've been having our instructors do a little reading for us all. And looking around, we have a few instructors here. Uh, Miss uh, Tashi, would you like to start with the first one? But before we start, I'm going to see if I can do this for the class. I'm going to see if I can leave up my copies to make it easy for everyone. Can you oh, read yes, number thirty-three? Yes. Yeah. The restless oh, head. Yeah. Yeah. The restless, Please go ahead. The, rest, <laughs> the <laughs> restless, agitated mind, hard to protect hard to control, the sage makes straight as a fletcher, the shaft of an arrow. That is absolutely lovely. You did a great job. But it, so I'm guessing Fletcher is an arrow maker. Um, what I find quite fascinating is we have these diff, these three different texts that we're, we're working on, working on. Um, on this one, we have one by Buddha Rakita and we have one by Gaden Chippel. Um, the thing about Gaden Chippel that's nice is that he he cites the place where they were spoken by the Buddha, and by doing that, as you can see, it shows which ones are combined, which ones belong together. Uh, when we first started the Dharmapada, we we were talking about how they're not. It wasn't written like a text. These are just collections of various 
uh, pieces of, of knowledge, wisdom from the sutras that are get, gathered together in some kind of an order pertaining to these subjects. They were not particularly meant to be to be read or studied one after the other. But when we look at Gaden Chippel's copy, which is here, it shows us which ones are combined, right? <clears throat> so in other words, a great deal of the verses in the Dharmapada <clears throat> are simply not connected to the ones prior or the ones after. But here we can see in his copy which ones are. So we have, he lists some uh, one and two. <clears throat> They're both from, from the same um, batch. So I find that really uh, fascinating. So in Gaten Chappelle's, he, uh, which is turning out to be my favorite, he, uh, his translation or interpretation is, the mind is restless and cunning, difficult to calm, difficult to guard, <clears throat> as the archer makes his arrow straight, the wise straighten out their mind. Isn't that fascinating? Darcy, can you read the second one? Because they're supposed to be together. <coughs> like a fish out of water, thrown on dry ground, this mind thrashes about, trying to escape Mara's command. Wonderful. <clears throat> and again, Gaden Chippels is, Trembling like a fish tossed from the sea upon the shore, the mind quivers uncontrollably, stranded in the realm of Mara. We mentioned in prior sutra classes that Mara, though, um, though seen as some type of a deity or wrongly perceived as the devil in the West, Mara is an archetype, but it's not a, it's not a deity or a being. Mara represents our samsaric qualities, our afflictions, our limitations, such as ignorance and immaturity and selfishness and greed and hunger and lust and add all the qualities you don't like about yourself. Mara is the representation of all of that. And also the habitual mind, the social conditioned mind, a mind that that is out of control. It does what it wants following habits and patterns. And so um, in the sutras, when the Buddha talks about battling Mara, he's battling his own afflictions and his limitations of working with his own mind. Does anyone have any comments on those? So generally, we're I, I thought it was interesting, Gaden Chirpels, where he talks about the mind being ruthless and uh, restless and cunning. And I thought it was an interesting term uh, cunning because it really can, can it? And sometimes the mind will justify things that clearly are wrong, but it's sneaky as hell, isn't it? Oh, okay. And how about just a peek at, at uh, <clears throat> Bororakita's just like a, this is very traditional, just as a Fletcher straight, straightens an arrow shaft, even so the discerning man straightens his mind, so fickle and unsteady, so difficult to guard. As a fish when pulled out of water and cast on the land throbs and quivers, even so is this mind agitated. Hence, should one abandon the realm of Mara? So I guess to 
to clarify, we're just talking about how little control we have over the mind and how problematic the mind can be. And um, the goal in life is to escape our afflictions and limitations. Would anyone like to comment? Uh, when I'm sharing this screen, I can't see everybody, so you can either speak up or maybe Neil can let me know if somebody has their hand raised. Or, and Neil, if there's anything in the chat that's uh, you should bring to my attention, please feel free. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Yoli, would you like to read yeah. the next one? Uh, Tarba. Oh, please. Excuse Lynn. me, this is Lynn. Uh, I just asked the question, uh, where can I find a copy of Ch uh, Chappelle? Because I tried to find one on Amazon and couldn't find it. Yeah, we have a copy on our website for you. Uh, because okay. it's sold out, we thought it would be okay to share it um, okay. on our website. Okay. We usually wouldn't share a, a, a copywritten text. But in this case, we're using it for reference. And so okay. uh, I have it posted there for everybody. Okay, thank you. And in the future, maybe it becomes available. We can uh, buy copies of it. Okay. You're welcome. Yoli, could you read the next two? Or the next one? <clears throat> Yoli's not with us? Here we go. No, here I am. Oh. Sorry. Just wanted to, I wanted to look at some. So, uh, Yoli, the next one, two, three, four. The next four are, are grouped together. They were all taught at the same time. Can you read the next four? Yes. The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes. One does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes. The sage protects, the watched mind brings happiness. Far-ranging, solitary, incorporeal, and hidden is the mind. Those who restrain it will be free from Mara's bonds. For those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true Dharma, and whose serenity wavers, Wisdom does not mature. Oh, thank you. That was wonderful. Let's see what Gideon Schippel says on this. <clears throat> the mind is flighty. They use that word again. The mind, is, the mind is flighty and elusive, moving wherever it pleases. Taming it is, is, a wonderful, is wonderful indeed, for a disciplined mind invites true joy. The mind is like space, difficult to see, moving where it pleases. Watching it carefully is wise indeed. A guarded mind invites true joy. The mind being formless is well hidden in its haunts and, is, and it wanders here and there on its own. Whoever catches the mind and tames it is free from Mara's bonds. Knowing nothing of the Holy Dharma, the mind never stays still. Since the clear depths are disturbed, complete and perfect wisdom does not arise. 
And why don't we get a peek at, at this next one? <clears throat> Again, Buddharakita. Wonderful indeed is to subdue the mind. So difficult to subdue, ever swift, and seizing whatever it desires. A tamed mind brings happiness. Boy, that was the most powerful of the three for me. That really drives the meaning home. 36. Let the discerning man guard the mind. So difficult to detect and extremely subtle, seizing whatever it desires. A guarded mind brings happiness. 37. Dwelling in the cave of the heart. The mind without form wanders far and alone. Those who subdue this mind are liberated from the bonds of Mara. And in the notes it talks about dwelling in the cave. The cave is solitude. <clears throat> oh, that's great. I think we're on 38 here. It's hard for me to keep track of all of these. Does anybody have any comments on that? To me, they're, they're very kind of straightforward and simple. I don't feel like there's much for me to add so far. We know so far we just keep coming back to this message of an uncontrolled mind is misery. And it's samsara itself, right? That's probably a great definition of samsara. It's just an uncontrolled mind. And the idea is that by taming and gaining control over the mind and the thinking process, this is the pathway to, to joy. Oh, lovely. <clears throat> I'm getting lost in all of my <laughs> various things. Where are we, huh? Does anybody have a number? Far as solitude, how we read that one, right? I think we're on 38, if I'm not mistaken. Neil, would you like to read one? I know you got your hands busy. You're doing tech support, but maybe you could. Does anyone have any questions about the last one or comments or any insights? This one seems pretty straightforward so far, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Neil, take it away. Those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true dharma, and whose serenity wavers, wisdom does not mature. Thank you. And I want to take a peek at something here. Can you read the next one as well, Neil? These are grouped in twos. One who is awake, whose mind isn't overflowing, whose heart isn't afflicted, and who has abandoned both merit and demerit, fear does not exist. Oh, that's a powerful statement. And Gaden Chappell says, <clears throat> those whose minds are free of fetters, whose minds do not wander, who have given up thinking of merit or sin, are awake and fearless. And those who know that the body is like a fragile vessel. Are we on the right? Am I on the right one, everybody? I think I am. A formless of the uh, a fortress of the mind. They are ever vigilant, and with the sword of wisdom, 
they wage constant war on Mara. I'm afraid uh, I should edit this uh, text and put the correct numbers in because obviously I can't maintain all of these things I'm doing at the same time. So um, <clears throat> let's get back to this original one. This is a, a very powerful, for those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true Dharma and those and whose serenity wavers wisdom does not mature. Um, any thoughts on this? This has a, so a lot of interesting uh, thoughts in it. So we're talking about unsteady of mind. We're talking about lacking mental stability. But knowing true Dharma, we in these texts, we don't have any notes on what they mean by true Dharma. And, uh, and Dharma is such a difficult word to translate. Uh, dharma, uh, we usually think of the Buddhist teachings, but also true Dharma can just be truth in life itself. Uh, but let's assume that they're talking about the Dharma, uh, one who does not understand their true nature and the true nature of reality, and whose serenity wavers. So their, their idea of a virtue, non-virtue, goes back and forth. They simply aren't capable of developing wisdom. And Gideon Schiphol says, for those minds who are free of fetters. So if you remember, in fetters, uh, this is from the Theravada tradition, the 10 fetters are actually the, the subtlest form of affliction. Uh, they claim that the 10 fetters is what gives rise to ignorance. In Mahayana Buddhism, ignorance is considered the primary affliction. But the Theravada school takes it one step back and they say, no, ignorance is created through these 10 fetters. So we've, we've shared that before on here. Um, whose mind does not wander. Again, we have mental stability and mental concentration. Who have given up thinking of merit or sin. So this is someone who's beyond thoughts of, of um, <clears throat> gaining, gaining merit or dismerit, that they, uh, and, and in so many ways, this comes back to the idea that very high practitioners, whether they're arhats or they're bodhisattvas, they say that they, they achieve a state where merit becomes irrelevant, that they, their, their actions are so pure, they no longer have to worry about sin or demerit or negative karma. They simply don't produce it because they understand the nature of life. And then in the same way, uh, it's also said that in a sense, they also don't produce necessarily good karma because they just see the, the way things naturally are. Uh, Merits and demerits are values that the human mind places upon things. They're categorizations of these things are deemed good, these things are deemed uh, uh, malevolent. But for a mind that's at this peak level of wisdom, they just see the natural workings of the universe beyond this distinction of good and bad, of merit and sin. So that's the idea here. And they're awakened and fearless. And I think that you can imagine if you were at that state of wisdom, how 
you understand how everything works. There just wouldn't be any fear. You wouldn't fear death. You wouldn't fear anything. <clears throat> the next line, though those who know that the body is like a fragile vessel make a fortress of the mind. They are ever vigilant and with the sword of wisdom, they wage constant war with Mara. Um, so uh, in another take, they talked about the body being like a clay pot. See, that's what it is here on 39. I might be making a mistake on where we are. Papa? Yes. Steve's got his hand up. Yeah, please, Steve. Yeah, I... I think I see what happened. Uh, we were reading um, verses 38 and 39. Thank and, you. And uh, the Tibetan version, I think that corresponds to six and seven, not seven and eight. Thank you. Yeah. My apologies, everybody. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so we got a little advanced teaching on the next one. Um, I think if you add a three in front of the number, then you know yeah. that yeah then you can ah. yeah oh you're brilliant donna's wrote in the chat fear is all fear is so important to abandon no doubt about it no doubt about it thank you donna Okay, so now we're under the clay pot. Now this one I kind of get. Let's see what the note is on 39. They talk about the mind. I'm sorry. They talk about the mind uh, not overflowing, oozing, or soaking with lust. I To me, that, that adjective or adverb makes a lot of sense, the idea of the mind overflowing. Who here doesn't have that feeling that their mind is just overflowing with stuff? Man, thinking about everything, right? At every moment, we rarely have any peace. The mind is just overflowing with interests and worries and all of these things that we're kind of stuck with. And yeah, tonight I'll uh, adjust the numbers to make this easier for me. I won't be so confused. I'll... Uh, re-edit that text. Okay, um, with that said, let's move on to uh, to our clay pot, right? Knowing the mind. Uh, and uh, Tashi, would you like to read this one? Let me take a peek real quick at where we, let me take a peek quickly at this. Where's our clay pot? Oh, our clay pot is on it's 37 and 39. Is that right? I don't think your three idea works, Yoli. That'd be, that'd be 37 and 38, but <laughs> we'll figure it out. Tashi, would you like to read this so, one for us? Yeah, we're on 40. <laughs> We're on 40, yeah. Okay, Please good. keep me keep Just me on, wanted to make sure. on okay. track. Alrighty. Um, knowing this body to be like a clay pot, establishing this mind like a fortress, one should battle Mara with sword of insight, protecting what has been won, clinging to nothing. Oh, that's lovely. And we read this one already, but let's read it again. 
Those who know that the body is like a fragile vessel make a fortress of the mind. They are ever vigilant, and with the sword of wisdom, they wage constant war with Mara. Okay, so um, yeah, they talk about that the that the uh, the body, like a clay pot, is easily broken, and um, so the idea is that the only security that we have is in the mind itself, and um, you know you, you, your body can get sick, you're this or that, but the mind is the most stable of them all. One should battle Mara with the sword of insight. Uh, it's interesting that uh, usually there's no sign of violence in Buddhism except for Tantric Buddhism. That's where kind of violence sneaks in. Uh, and so I'm guessing that this is a later sutra that they bring in battling Mara with the Sword of Insight. But that's just a, that just is a take from me. I guess they talked about, the, the Buddha talked about battling Mara as well. But yeah, protecting what has been won, clinging to nothing. Does anyone have any thoughts? I'm afraid this uh, this chapter doesn't lend much to commentary. I don't feel like there's much for me to add. Uh, Buddha Rakita talks about, um, oh, that's a note. I, my apologies. Um, realizing that this body is as fragile as a clay pot and fortifying the mind like a well-fortified city Fight out Mara with the sword of wisdom, then guarding the conquest, remain unattached. So, realizing that enlightenment is, is done through our minds, we want to fortify our minds. We do that with our vows, right? We do that, we do that with our, our goodness, our ethical behavior. By holding our vows is probably the, the great way to fortify our minds. And the practice of mindfulness gaining control over the thinking process. I think that's the sort of wisdom. And then uh, maintaining that. So we, because until we're higher level practitioners, it's very easy to, to fall back into our old habits and patterns and, um, and to try to remain unattached in life itself. Neil, would you like to read the next one? 41. All too soon, this body will lie on the ground, cast aside, deprived of consciousness, like a useless scrap of wood. Oh, heavens. Eden Chappell says, alas, within a very short time, this body will lose its consciousness. It will be left lying on the ground like the limbless trunk of a tree. Buddha realizing that this body is a fret, oh, I'm sorry, um, ere long alas, this body will lie upon the earth unheeded and lifeless, like a useless log. And another thing I didn't say in the last one that's important, in traditional Buddhism, of course, when they believe in multiple lives and rebirths, the mind itself is something that we can improve. We keep our karma, we keep our merit. So the body will die, it'll be on the ground, it'll be decaying. But the good karma that we earn, the merit that we earn, 
goes forward into our next lifetime. So in traditional Buddhism, that's what's constantly being built up, lifetime after lifetime moving towards a, a, towards a direction of virtue. Um, for many of our secular Buddhist groups who don't have uh, members, who don't have a belief in rebirth, uh, this can just be seen day to day that um, that the mind, you know, the body's going to get old, it's going to get sick, it's going to die. And in a sense, the mind does too, but the mind is, is really the only thing that um, we can truly work with. The mind is the source of our reality. The mind is the source of our happiness and our sorrow, despite the body. That's how people who are, are terribly sick or they're handicapped or uh, somehow afflicted, they still can find happiness. Because the mind is only the mind is the is the main player in the equation, so I think that that's safe to uh, to say here. Thank you, and it's a it's a great uh, piece on impermanence as well. Yes, Yoli, would you like to read forty two? There's there's comments, Tarpa. Comments. Oh please, Neil, would you like to read a couple? Yeah, Robin has asked, what about Nigel to read one in Chantel? <clears throat> oh, I didn't see Nigel. Please, Nigel, can you read one for us? Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, 42? Please. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy or haters one to another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly directed mind. Oh, that's quite powerful, isn't it? There's a note on it. Oh, it's just a translation. Oh, Papa is related as harm. <clears throat> oh, let's see what Gideon Chippel says about that. The mind which is wrongly guided does not does even greater harm than the harm afflicted by an enemy upon his foe. So they're just talking about the the harm of that of the mind, right? Whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy or hate upon hater, an ill-directed mind afflicts oneself a greater harm. And guess what? I agree with that one. When I'm having a bad day, chances are it's because uh, my mind's in a funny place. If I've been meditating strongly and I really feel centered, um, it just seems like everything else in my life evens out and works out well. We truly do create all our own misery in the world, I do believe. But not all, of course. There is some external, but nevertheless, a great deal of it. Uh, Nigel, since I forgot about you, would you like to read the last one? Okay. Uh, neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one as much good as one's own well-directed mind. You're so wise, thank you. And Gaden Schippel says the red-guarded mind acts for even greater good than the good done by one's parents or by those whom we know. And Gaden Schippel finishes with, neither mother, father, nor any other relative can do one greater good than one's own well-directed mind. Would anybody like to sum that one up for us. 
What do you guys think that that means? So I'll take a question yeah. in the chat. Okay. From Mary. Who was the herdsman, Nandia? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember the I don't remember the name. Yeah, I'm sorry, you have to Google it. Tenzin Terp is not as good as Google. <laughs> Would anybody like to try to summarize this last one? Have any takers? Tarpa in the chat. Travis has written, wholesome conditions produce wholesome results. That's, uh, that's very true. I think this, there's something else here, though. I think, there, I think here they're saying that that nothing can bring you happiness, well-being, more than your own mind, right? They're saying in life, if you want to live a flourishing life, if you want to be happy, if you want to achieve all the things you want, there is one and only place to rely upon, and that's your own mind, that nothing in life can, can uh, help you that much. Though I think mother and father can help us develop our minds pretty well, don't they? We learn great lessons from our mothers and fathers and values. Those contribute to our minds. That's part of our conditioning. Ian's posted by ourselves, we are defiled or purified. Well said. That's beautiful. Yeah. Though other people might have a little to do with it. <laughs> People have a way to get in there. It's also added through our own minds and not through others. Yeah, it's true. <clears throat> but um, are our own minds ever alone? You know, do they ever, do our minds and our intelligence grow in solitude? And they don't. So I understand the quote, but then it's kind of superficial when you think about that our minds are products of our social environment and our education. And then you could, you could say the opposite. And you could say, well, just how much of your mind really is you? You know, your values, your intentions, you, your beliefs. I mean, they're so shaped by what country you're born in, what kind of friends you have and parents. And so, um, but I think the point of the, of the comment is, of the verses, no matter what you're born with, no matter what kind of mind you have, you have to take control of it in order to benefit your own life. If you really want to succeed in life, you have to work directly with the mind. Or I would add that once you take care of your, your own mind, you can share that with other people. You can go back and share that with your parents and other people. Well said. Yeah, and I think about my own mind and working with my own mind. Well, I've worked with my own mind through all my teachers, right? I've embraced all these things my teachers have taught that shaped my mind. But I guess, you know, maybe it just comes back to what we, what we reach for when we're trying to improve our lives. Are we, are we reaching for external phenomena? Are we looking for other people to save us? Looking for a Messiah to save us from ourselves? And in Buddhism, it's 
it's uh, it always comes back to your own mind that self-reliance that you are in control of your own mind you are the you are your own guru you are your own light and getting triplets says the rightly guided mind acts for even greater goodness than the good done by our parents or by others whom we know and it's it's true that a properly trained mind is an amazing thing. That is that is the path to awakening, right? I remember when I first got into Buddhism, I didn't like in the prayers that they kept talking about training the mind. And I really rebelled against it. I don't need training. Who's going to train me? What are you? And then later, I, I really uh, begin to understand it. The two terms, training and taming. And I thought, I don't, it sounded kind of cultish to me. You're going to tame my mind. But uh, later on, I really understood it because I started to more and more realize how to, out of control my own mind was and how little control I had over it. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. I believe we've got another <laughs> chat posted from... I keep wondering whether the warrior imagery in this chapter comes from as a result of a Buddha's castrichia, can't pronounce that, <clears throat> background, which, my, which many of his listeners shared as an archer. It is one of my favourite chapters. Sure. Yeah, the, bar, the Buddha comes from the, from the higher class of the warrior class underneath the Brahmins, where his set is. And so, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Maybe it comes from there. Um, and maybe this is just culture at, this, at those times, right? That, you know, when you're living in the, in the Bronze Age, you know, swords and battling is just a part of everyday life for everybody. So they use analogies that everybody can understand. But a good guess, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Not a very fascinating chapter. I can tell by the looks on people's faces. Not a lot of commentary. An important one, though, right? So again, we're just, I think we could summarize the whole, the whole uh, chapter by just how important the mind is in all the things that we're trying to do. That whatever you're thinking about, it all is hinged upon the mind and our control over it. And they talked about mental stability. They talked about mindfulness, gaining control over the thinking process, not letting the mind overflow, which is a very <clears throat> familiar phrase for me. I think my mind is constantly overflowing. How do Buddhists define the mind? Oh, so... <clears throat> That's a tough question, Kawani. That's a class all in itself. But uh, Buddhists see mind as not the brain, but a kind of an omnipresent force within the body. It's interesting when uh, in the West, when we, when we talk about our mind, Westerners will point to their head. When Tibetans talk about the mind, they'll point to their hearts. But they believe the brain and mind are different. With that said, uh, especially Tibetan Buddhism, they don't believe in one mind, but they believe in many minds. 
or many aspects of mind that they call minds. Very quite complicated. And boy, they're keeping Neil busy here. It was fascinating that, to me that is making me think about all the trouble in my mind. I could have avoided had I learned this 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the first real awakenings is when in meditation, when you really come to the point where you realize just how out of control your mind is. Uh, so, you know, the, we always go back to that great analogy that the beginning of wisdom is knowing that you don't know anything. It's just, this is the same kind of an idea that we go through our lives thinking that we have control over what we do and we're choosing what we do. But at one point in meditation and in your practice, you'll get to the point where you realize, oh my God, I have absolutely, you know, so little control of any kind over my mind. And that is a pivotal moment in your practice. That's kind of hitting ground zero. That's where you can really start to build. Because once you realize that, then there's a, a real determination to gain that, right? And I think we're talking about free will, even though we, our determinist friend Scott is here. I will probably disagree with me. But I think uh, most of us, uh, I believe that humans have free will, but most of us have very little of it or display very little of it. And I think the spiritual path like Buddhism is one in which we're gaining more and more free will, that we're actually uh, aware of and understanding of our actions and our decisions. <clears throat> so um, that's the path that I'm on. And, I, and I, I feel like it's that way in my own practice. I, every day I feel I have more control over my mind, especially the thinking process. You know, at, at some point you can get to the point where you can actively choose what to think, and you can also actively choose whether to think at all. You know, I could just shut my mind off for a long period of time and, and just not think about things. Chantel says, the sutra for me are grounded and practical in its simplicity. Well said, Chantel, and they should be. Um, in fact, uh, at the end of all of these uh, classes, I give a little speech and it says, uh, remember that the sutra teachings are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage fully with them, utilizing the three great objectives of study, contemplation and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings apply to your daily life transforming them from words on the page into living dharma. Now I won't have to read that later. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And again, just a, a, a grounded knowledge of, you know, you might be seeking for happiness in all kinds of places. Don't seek any further than your own mind. Dharma's posted. So the more control we have over our minds, the more free we, the more free we. Free will we have. Yeah, sorry. Well, I think, I think uh, having control over the mind and free will are synonymous. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're trying to, meaning the more that we gain control over the mind is the, the less we're, we're acting out of habitual 
uh, patterns and, uh, and conditioning. So where the more our, our thoughts or decisions are, are uh, authentic and not just habits. Because that's the idea of the opposite of free will is that we just, we just operate through habits and patterns. That's a simplified kind of a take on it. So yeah, to me, those are one and the same. And especially the thinking process, when you, when you get be behind the thinking process and you could control it, you also see its limitations, you see its problems. You see how thoughts arise from past experiences, from patterns and conditions. You start to understand the nature of thought. And then I think you really get, you, you gain liberation from it. Thought then becomes the servant instead of the master. For most of us, thought is the master. You know, we're just chasing it. It's dragging us all over the place. And I think we just gain more and more control of it. I have, you know, in my, in my practice, I've developed a, a, a really nice mental, emotional stability. I'm not dragged all over the place by my mind. And I'm hoping to do much better as well. Well, it was an interesting chapter. Did you enjoy it? Uh, um, Tarpa? Yeah. I, I just wanted to, um, I was looking back at the text and everything and trying to summarize it for myself. And, and I think the part that I think I want to bring out again is this idea of um, our mind sometimes um, makes us believe our, that our bodies are who we are. And as my body starts to deteriorate and my sister starts to go through her dying process, I think that this text also re-emphasizes that um, sometimes our minds play tricks on us and, and make us think that we are our bodies. And, and as a result, sometimes I know when I was sick, I used to you know, punish myself and say, oh, I must have been a bad person. And so what this text is saying is, is knowing that our mind, our bodies are impermanent and as they deteriorate, we should um, not cling to the ideas that we have about our bodies. Um, do you think that's a good evaluation? Or? I do, but we could add one more thing to it. Uh, technically in Buddhism, uh, they believe that we are not our bodies or our minds. Right. So not just our, our bodies, but our minds. So, and it, it, it easily said we're, we're the story or the identity behind that, right? We're a, we're a, we're a creation puted upon the mind and body, but uh, both of them are impermanent and subject to decay. That, so, yeah, that's very nice, Yoli. Oh, lovely. What a smart song I got. Eh, does anybody, would anybody like to add anything else? For next week, we have the chapter flowers. And I'm afraid I haven't read ahead. I don't know what it's actually about. So, uh, but each, uh, each version, that's what the header is for. It's just called flowers. So that's going to be a great one. Um, if anybody has any more questions, comments, or interests, uh, please follow our uh, social media and uh, go on our Dharma chat and carry on the conversation there. Travis says, much to reflect on with chapter three, certainly a significant focus 
and result on my aspirations and practice. Very well, yeah, well said. Yeah, I think it is indeed. So without further ado, let's end today's teaching with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well. May all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize the true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. And so if anybody needs anything, I'm going to click away. Thank you all for joining us. I think the Sutra Studies class is going pretty good. We're three classes in. It's a lot of fun. I, I, uh, I like studying for it. And I think we're all going to learn a whole bunch here, right? Okay, friends. Thanks. Thank See you. you tomorrow, our 10-week meditation course. Tomorrow Thank we're learning you. Vipassana meditation. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. See you.